As we transition from Jesus' triumphal entry to verse 20 of John chapter 12, there are two quick things. I want to recap two things you need to keep in mind. First, the remainder of John's gospel from this point forward will focus on events surrounding Jesus' week of passion. Secondly, verses 20 through 50 will mark the end of what we would refer to as Jesus' public ministry. Beginning in chapter 13, absolutely everything that John records takes place in a private setting. And so the end here of John 12 is kind of a transition of sorts. And so we pick up where we left off last Sunday with verse 20. John writing that there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Again, this is the feast of Passover. Then they came to Philip, who was one of the twelve who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came, and he told Andrew. This was the brother of Simon Peter, another one of the twelve. And in turn, John says that Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. Again, since John doesn't write using a strict chronology, it's difficult to determine whether this particular meeting of Jesus and these Greeks occurred Sunday evening after Jesus' triumphal entry, or at some point later in the week. We have no idea. John just states, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Now this reference, certain Greeks, it's an interesting term and it can have a few different meanings. Most simply, the, the word here for Greek, Helen, can refer literally to men and women that were Greek, ethnically. In a more general sense, John could be using this word to refer to a group of people that just weren't Hebrew, the Greeks, the Gentiles. You also have examples of this being used in that sense, that context. Or, this could be a reference to a group of Hellenistic Jews. These were ethnic Jews who had adopted a more modern, secular, Grecian lifestyle. Again, we don't know which of the three groups this were, this was, but it could be one of them. Either way, regardless, we do know that since they had come to worship at the feast, they were religious. God was working in their hearts. Now, if they were Hellenistic Jews, they would have been given full access to the temple. If they had been either Greeks or Gentiles, Gentile proselytes, they would have been reserved to the outer courtyard. Whether it had been the buzz about Jesus that had been circulating with his entry, or potentially the fact that early Monday morning, Jesus goes into the temple and clears out the money changers from the outer courtyard of the Gentiles. Either way, this delegation of Greeks, they're very curious There's a stirring, a moving, and they come to Philip. Likely coming to Philip because it's a Gentile name. And they desire a sit-down with Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now, I'm not sure what to do with the request. Philip comes to, to Andrew. They both come and bring word to Jesus. Verse 23, but Jesus answered them. Now, in the context, it might appear that Jesus is answering Philip and Andrew. And yet in the flow of the narrative, it's going to to seem apparent that he's also addressing a a crowd. I think it's it's easy for us to assume he's addressing these these Greek proselytes. 
But Jesus says the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, on at least two occasions thus far in the Gospel of John, Jesus, in reaction to certain things going on and, and the disciples wanting him to do this or to do that, he, he's commented. We've seen it in at least twi- two occasions. He's commented, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. And yet, now that we're in the week of Passover, Jesus' tone has changed. His triumphal entry was a change. Now he's remarking that the hour has come. I'm going to do something different here. My hour is now. The hour that the Son of Man, Jesus says, should be glorified. Now in the Greek, this one word translated, should be glorified, it describes the act of rendering high esteem. Now what makes that fascinating to me is that we know that Jesus is speaking of what? He is speaking in context to his crucifixion. An act of total savagery. Jesus is saying, would be used by his heavenly Father to render to him incredible honor and glory and praise. Now to explain how that would even be possible, Jesus articulates an idea using an an analogy, an illustration, they would know, of a grain of wheat. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus' audience would know for an individual grain to become anything more than it is. A process of life to death to life again would be required. Now pertaining to the process by which he would be glorified, Jesus is saying that his death would be absolutely necessary, essential, critical even. Without his death on the cross, the glories of an empty tomb could have never been realized. The resurrection life that Jesus came to offer demanded first a death, his death, to atone for the sins of the world. In the flow of the text, it's as though the Greeks come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And so Jesus replies, hey man, if you really want to see me for who I am, oh just hold on and look for what happens after my coming death. Jesus then continues here with a powerful exhortation. In light of these things, he says in verse 25, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now first, many twist this verse to mean some things that it doesn't. So it should be stated that Jesus is not saying that we should hate this life, or that we should somehow hate the enjoyments found in living The truth is, while many aspects of our existence have indeed been marred by sin, there is a lot about this life in a fallen world that we can and should enjoy. You should enjoy delicious food. You should enjoy drink and friendships, marriage, kids. You should enjoy the sunrise and the sunset. Mountain peaks and sandy beaches. Cool cars and good reeds. You see, Christians are not called to a monastic lifestyle whereby we avoid all pleasure in order to somehow be more spiritual. This is not what Jesus is saying here. 
Instead, in this passage, Jesus is speaking of one's core longing. Think of it like this. Jesus is asking, what kind of life are you ultimately pursuing? Now, the subject matter, keep in mind, it's not living, but the life you're living for. The key to this perspective is to define the two different Greek words that Jesus uses in this verse for life. When Jesus says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it, he's using the word psyche. Literally, this is the natural life. But in contrast, when Jesus then at the end of the verse mentions eternal life, he's using an entirely different Greek word. As a matter of fact, it's a phrase, eternal life. And it describes not the natural life, but instead the living soul, the non-material man that never ceases to live. Simply put, Jesus is contrasting here the natural life of this temporal material existence with the eternal spiritual life, not tethered to the physical world. I hope you know when you die, that is not the death of you, that you continue to live, that there is a part of you, the real you, not tethered to the physical, but it's spiritual. It's the immaterial you, the real you, by the way. Again, Jesus, his point here, it centers on which life are you living for? The one in this world or the one which lasts? Jesus says here that it's a decision ultimately of love and hate. Which of the two matter most to you in the end? Do you care more about your soul's eternal existence or your present life's temporal enjoyments? That's what he's getting at. Now, building off of this idea of the importance of one's core longing, Jesus then adds, he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me or literally ministers to me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will, will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. This idea of serving Jesus and following Jesus as being the prerequisite of being honored by his Father. It intends to emphasize the importance of a continual communion and a continual fellowship with Jesus. It's the tense. If anyone serves me, is continually serving me. Let him follow me, continually follow me. Most gloriously, Jesus says, that his father will honor or attribute value and worth to anyone that makes this decision. This is relationship with Jesus. Then Jesus says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now this is, to me, one of the most astounding statements made by Jesus. This phrase, my soul is troubled. It's powerful. It's, it's loaded with emotion. It oozes humanity. 
It can actually be translated as my soul is in the process of being continually troubled. This, again, Greek word troubled, it means to stir up, to agitate, to render one anxious and distressed. Now keep in mind, knowing that his betrayal, his vicious scourging and crucifixion were just literally days away, realizing that his death and humiliation was essential for you and I to be saved, to have access to eternal life, understanding what would be required of him, both physically and also spiritually. Imagine him, him who knew no sin, to experience the shame of of the sins of the world, to become sin. For him that that experienced a, a perfect connection and communion with his father, to then have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can't even begin to scratch the surface of all that Jesus knew he would be going through. What was ahead of him. And it's with that in mind, knowing it was coming in his humanity. Jesus here, he cries, my soul is troubled. He's admitting a restlessness within his soul. How fascinating that in this particular moment of realness, Jesus doesn't hide these things from us. He doesn't keep them internalized. He expresses them. He gives you and I, those there, an insight. Not just into what he was experiencing, but most importantly, how he handled these very real human experiences. How he handled this inward anxiety. Do you deal with anxiety? Do you struggle to get out of your own mind? Do you deal with a restlessness of the soul? Even if you can't attribute it to something specific, while you might be able to, do you deal with an uneasiness? You see, Jesus did. He says, my soul is troubled. And what's awesome is he is now going to illustrate how he dealt with his anxiety so that we can deal with it as well. And notice first, that Jesus immediately checked his fears, he checked his trepidations within a larger context of his situation. He says, my soul is troubled, but then what follows? He says, what shall I say about the way that I feel? I feel this way, but what should I say? And then he concludes, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Like, understand, Jesus here, he found incredible resolve to endure his present anxiety by checking that anxiety with his larger purpose. This word purpose, it refers to the grounds or the reason by which something is done. It's as though Jesus is saying, my soul is troubled, I'm anxious. But you know what? I will not allow this anxiety to deter me from my purpose. Also notice that such a perspective that immediately influenced the subject of his prayer. It influenced the way that he prayed. Instead of praying, Father, save me from this hour, Jesus prayed what? Father, glorify your name. This is an actual prayer recorded of Jesus. He could have prayed, Father, save me from this hour, but he says, no, 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 this is my purpose, so Father... You be glorified. Instead of escape from trial. 
Jesus asked that his father would be glorified in the way he handled his trial. You know, how often in our own prayers we pray, save me from, when instead we should pray, help me through. Now again, I don't think the prayer, save me from, is wrong. As a matter of fact, I think one of the most powerful prayers ever uttered in Scripture was just that, if you recall Peter. Seeing Jesus walking on the water, requested from the Master permission to walk on the water with him. Jesus said, come on, man. To his credit, Peter got out of the boat. The only two people ever walked on water, and Peter's one of them. Now, he didn't last very long. Because he got on the water, and he started to get distracted by the wind and the waves, and all the things. He lost sight of Jesus in the moment, and he began to sink. And what does he do? He prays in the moment, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately answered him. And he saved him. Again, prayers of salvation don't have to be anything more than save me. And he'll respond to it. And yet, in the moment of those prayers, when Jesus has maybe a a different answer for you, or the answer is not what you want, how often we need to say, Lord, yes, in my humanity, save me. However, if this is your purpose, then help me through the trial. Help me endure. Help me persevere. I can't do it, Jesus. I can admit that as well, but I'm glad I don't have to do it alone. That you've promised a helper in my time of need. And notice, Jesus says, instead of Father, save me, Father, glorify your name. Notice how fast the Father answers. Second half of verse 28, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, for the student of Scripture, you should know that this is the third time in the Gospels that we have the audible voice of God the Father coming from heaven. The first time was following Jesus' baptism. Let let me read you the account recorded in Mark 1. We're told that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, Jesus saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The second time there's an audible voice from heaven was during Jesus' transfiguration. Again, I'll read you the account in Matthew 17. We're told that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, this is our author John, he led them up onto a high mountain by themselves, and then we're told he was transfigured before them. There was a metamorphosis, is the literal translation. He changed. John recounts, Matthew recounts, they recount, that his face in the moment, it shone like the sun, and Jesus' clothes became white as light, and behold... (laughs) Moses and Elijah also appeared to them walking with Jesus. Again, I don't know how they recognized that it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe they had name tags, so there had never been pictures. But, you know, neither here nor there. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Duh. Nice nice observation. And then he says, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while Peter was still speaking... Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, literally interrupting Peter in thought, and says, this is my beloved son. It doesn't address the tabernacle's idea. He says, this is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Basically, Peter, shut up. Listen to him. 
And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. So that was the second, now in direct response to this prayer, whereby Jesus is surrendering his anxiety. We're told that the Father spoke from heaven, answering his prayer, stating, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it, heard the voice, they said that it, it thundered. Now, this word thundered is a terrible translation. As a matter of fact, it's quite misleading. The Greek word here simply describes something that comes quickly, unexpectedly. They're describing the voice, not saying it sounded like thunder. As a matter of fact, this Greek word is never translated as thundered anywhere else in Scripture. So they said, man, it came quick. Unexpected. Others said an angel spoke. But Jesus answered and he said to them, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, what's most interesting about this moment is that while there is no question, the Father was responding to Jesus' specific question, his prayer, his statement. This audible voice, the nature of it, Jesus says wasn't for him. Why? He didn't need an audible voice. He was connected with his father. Instead, the audible nature of the voice was so everyone else could hear that the father responded to Jesus' prayer. It was for the crowd's benefit. And here's why. This morning, if you're facing something that is creating, fostering anxiety in your life, a fear, a concern, a trepidation, if your soul is troubled, like Jesus, please know that if you emulate Jesus' example by taking that anxiety to the Lord in prayer, if you place that in the larger context of God's purpose for your life, God will never hesitate in His response. Jesus will always answer such a prayer. Now, <laughs> That's not to say that you'll like his answer. Or that the restlessness or anxiety magically goes away. Like it's worth pointing out that this is not the last time this very week that Jesus wrestled with the same restlessness. According to Matthew 26, on the very night that he was betrayed and arrested, Jesus goes with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and he prayed, Oh my father, if this is possible, let this cup pass from me. Speaking of, of what was coming. Nevertheless, Jesus adds, Not my will, but your will be done. Then Jesus came to the disciples. This is Peter, James, and John. found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he came and found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy. So Jesus left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words, but concluding each time, not my will, but your will be done. This morning, Ray sang the song, Thy Will in Worship. And the song, the author wrote it in response to having a miscarriage, a very painful, deep, troubling time. And she pulled out pen and wrote her honesty of, 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 I'm so confused. I've never been here before. I don't know what to do. But she keeps coming back to what? Echoing the prayer of Jesus, the statement of Jesus, the resolve of Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Taking her anxiety, being honest and real. Jesus was, so can you. But realizing there's a greater purpose. Verse 31, now this is the judgment of the world, Jesus says. And the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then John adds, this Jesus said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is articulating here, consider that the subject is his coming death. Kind of work its way backwards, which is why I think John adds what he does. He's talking about his death, is what John is saying. And knowing that helps you understand what's being articulated. Jesus said here that he would be lifted up from the earth, which then would result in what? The drawing of all peoples to himself. In the Greek, this singular word that's translated lifted up, it can have two meanings. One, it can mean to be lifted up, to be raised from the ground, which we can understand Jesus physically was lifted up on the cross. But it can also mean, in, in the Greek, to be exalted, which is what resulted in this lifting up. It, in, in the light of the crucifixion, Jesus is kind of utilizing a play on words. He's lifted up in both ways. Physically, he's lifting up, but he's also glorified in it. And what results from his crucifixion, Jesus says, is that this would draw all peoples to himself. Please notice, right from the beginning, that Jesus draws people. He doesn't drive them. Pastor Joe Foch, he aptly said, it's, it's cattle that are driven, but sheep are led. I love that. It's not a purpose-driven life. There is a purpose in a drawing life. A life that's drawn to Jesus and His grace and what He's done, not what you're doing. He doesn't drive you forward. He woos you along. He says He draws all people to Himself. This wooing, it occurs without any distinction. Notice that. In the moment, this is pretty profound. He's saying He'll draw all peoples. This wasn't just for Israel. And who is his audience? Greeks. Jesus is telling here this, this, this group of Gentiles that it would be through his death he would draw all people, regardless of, of nationality or ethnicity or religion. He would draw them to himself. You know, never forget, where God so loved the world, not just 
the elect, the world, that he sent his only begotten son. Now, we know that not all men respond to this drawing. There is still no question that Jesus desires all men might be saved. In light of his coming crucifixion, when he would be lifted up, Jesus says here that his death would bring about first the judgment of the world. Do you notice that? What Jesus means here is that on the cross, Jesus would provide a judgment for sin. The evil that had been unleashed in Eden would finally, on the cross, when Jesus was lifted up, it would meet its match. Through his sacrifice, taking upon himself the sins of the world, thereby, thereby uh, satisfying uh, the penalty of death, sin demanded, Jesus would create now a way by which you and I might be saved from that judgment. Think of it this way. The judgment of this world occurred when Jesus was judged for our transgressions. But Jesus also says something else happens. He says his death, the ruler of this world, would be cast out. Or more specifically, be deprived of his current power and influence. That's what it means. Now first, this mention of the world. This world. Jesus is speaking of any culture that stands in opposition to himself. When we talk about the world, that's what we're referring to when it's in the negative. Anything that opposes God, anything that opposes God's will, God's plans, God's movements. Anything that opposes Jesus. Now what makes that even more interesting is that Jesus affirms here the fact that this world, any culture pushing against Jesus, has a present ruler setting the agenda. Understand what we saw happen in New York this week with the approval of late-term abortion. Don't just point your finger at at the governor, Andrew Cuomo. Understand that there is a ruler pushing an agenda that wants to destroy life. Think about it. In response to Moses, what happened? The satanic assault was the slaughtering of babies, the innocent. In response to Jesus, what did Herod do in Bethlehem? Slaughtered the innocents. What we saw happen this week was such an appalling procedure. And then to celebrate it was nothing shy of satanic. And don't miss it. There is a ruler setting the agenda for what we see. Now, I'm not, oh, the devil made me do it. I'm not, and if you know, I'm not a hyper-spiritual individual, but we should always remember there is a spiritual element and a ruler according to Jesus. Scripture tells us the ruler was originally a glorious angel charged with the worship of God Himself among the angelic hosts of heaven. We know Him in Scripture and other places as Lucifer, Satan, Beelzebub. Culturally, we refer to Him as the devil. And we know that His heart was filled with pride. and He led a rebellion against God. According to Ezekiel 28, as a result of that original rebellion, Lucifer and a contingency of angels that followed Him were literally cast out of heaven. The earth became their domain. Then Satan still remaining the accuser of the brethren, maintained access to the throne room of God. To this day, Lucifer is the accuser of the brethren in heaven today, arguing against you. How wonderful that we have a mediator named Jesus. And yet, in Revelation 12, 
he will be cast out ultimately from heaven, his access being removed entirely. In Revelation 20, following the battle of Armageddon and the close of what we call a tribulational period, Satan will be cast out again, this time from the earth, into an abyss, where he's held for a thousand years while Jesus rules and reigns. But then he'll be loosed for a short season and again lead a rebellion, which will result in a final casting out, where he's cast into the lake of fire. It would seem here, because Jesus is saying that when he's lifted up, there will be a casting out that occurs. And in context, it would appear that through his crucifixion, and more importantly, probably the resurrection, Satan did lose a measure of influence and power. Now we could say, hell, where is your sting? A tool from his toolbox was taken. No longer was the sinful fate of man sealed. Jesus conquered death and the grave and provided now an alternate path, an alternate destiny, everlasting life. And so in light of the things that Jesus is saying, the people answered him, verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They get it. And who is the Son of Man? Now this is not an objection. Instead, this is an honest question based in a legitimate theological question. It was a quandary. You see, most viewed the Messiah in this day and age as being a king that would come to establish a kingdom that would last forever. And there was, by the way, an abundance of Scripture to validate such a position. And yet the problem, the confusion arose because their theology concerning the Messiah was partial. It was incomplete. Yes, Jesus would come and establish a kingdom that would last forever and his second coming. You see, most in this day failed to consider additional passages about the Messiah. Passages like Psalms 22, Isaiah 53, that presented the Messiah as a suffering servant before he became a triumphant king. So they come and they're like, you're talking about the Messiah dying. But that doesn't jive with our theology. So Jesus answered them. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Don't forget Jesus here is about to retreat from the public and spend his final few days privately teaching his disciples. In one aspect, it's amazing Jesus took an audience at all, yet alone a group of Gentiles. And yet I love that. It tells me a lot about Jesus. But in his closing argument, Jesus here, he returns to an analogy we are very familiar with. One that's repeated often in John's gospel, the analogy of light in darkness. And Jesus' core lesson, without recapping everything we've looked at thus far, was simple. While Jesus, the light of the world, was in their midst, he tells them that they had the perfect opportunity to believe and become sons of the light. Don't miss the moment, is what Jesus is saying. And then we're told that he spoke these things, departed, and was hidden from them. Just a little side observation. This phrase was hidden. Um, it's complicated. Because it describes something done to Jesus and not something that Jesus specifically did. In the, the way the Greek is structured here, 
Jesus spoke. Jesus departed from the crowds. But the fact that he was then hidden from them implies something supernatural took place to him. He was hidden. Not what he did, but what was done to him. Well, in lieu of these things, John takes a moment and again adds some commentary for us. Verse 37. But although Jesus had done many signs before them, they did not believe him. Now, if you're tracking through the Gospel of John, this is very logical. I love the way that John jumps in here. Because it's as though John is, is, is kind of saying, if you're like, if you're working, there's a question, man. Like in light of everything that Jesus had done, and in light of all of the eyewitnesses to his miracles, how is it, John is asking, that there were still people who refused to believe in him? And to answer that question, why would people reject Jesus in light of everything that was going on? John answers this by wisely taking us to the scriptures. He takes us to the Old Testament for an explanation. Specifically, he, he recounts Isaiah 53 verse 1, as well as Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10. John says here, he says, Although Jesus had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And then he adds, That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to him has the armor, literally the activity of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw the glory of God and God spoke to him. Now the grand debate on a passage like this is what came first. That's the conundrum, isn't it? What came first? Could they not believe because God wouldn't allow them? Which to me seems bizarrely out of character for a loving God. Or did God harden their resolve because they had already made the decision to not believe? (laughs) Which came first? That's the conundrum. If you figure out the answer, let me know. Either way, the overarching lesson, the application, is clear. We shouldn't miss it. Friend, if you find yourself in a situation, let's say right now, whereby Jesus is speaking to you, the light of the world is being revealed to you, and the darkness of your existence, if Jesus is speaking through the void to you in that moment, the application, don't reject Him. And instead, choose to believe and become a son or a daughter The author of Hebrews says that today is the day of salvation. And why is today so important? You have no idea what tomorrow brings. Nevertheless, John continues, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Coming directly off the statement that some could not believe, John adds, that even among the rulers, there was a group that did believe. Now, historically, we'll come to know that, that this group of what we would call closet believers would be Nicodemus. He would be one of these. The man that came at night. Jesus said, you must be born again. We also know one of these closet believers was, an, was a very powerful gentleman 
especially within Sanhedrin, the, the, the council historically, Joseph of Arimathea would later use his tomb for Jesus. He would come and seek permission from Pilate to, to retrieve the body. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea on the Sanhedrin are part of this group. We also will find out, according to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that there were many of the priests that believed. And yet these men failed to go public. Why? Well, it's sad. They were afraid of the power of the Pharisees. They were afraid of the repercussions of following Jesus, of identifying with Jesus. They were afraid they would be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated, ripped of power and prestige, often money even. John simply kind of sums up the essence of why by saying they love the praises of men more than the praises of God. For that's not a good place to be. That's not a good description. Really, what matters more? The opinion of your friends? The opinion of society? The opinion of family? Or the opinion of the God you will stand before in the judgment? Ultimately, there's only one opinion that will matter as it pertains to your destiny. And it's Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest or depart because I don't know you. It's that opinion that in the end is the only one that matters. Now in the remaining seven verses of John 12, we have recorded here Jesus' last public words in, in the Gospel of John to the crowd that's present. And again, Jesus reiterates some of the same themes, themes that spoke of his deity, his core mission, the importance of everlasting life. It's a recap. So we're just going to read through it. We're told Jesus cried out. And he said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. It's a claim of deity. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge, but to save his mission. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. As we close, I want to again reiterate the statement that Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And again, that the Father's whole purpose is for everlasting life, not eternal damnation. And while the implications of such an idea should not be lost on any sinful man or woman, Jesus came not to condemn you or to judge you. He came to save you. And while it's also true that the mission of Jesus should seek to challenge the way that we as Christians interact with the world around us. How sad it is that so many people think of Jesus as being judgmental because Christians are judgmental. So many false perceptions of Jesus because of how poorly we reflect Him. If Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to see the world saved, nor should we judge the world.
but seek the same salvation, the same goal. But I want you to think for a moment about the implications of that statement. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, had specifically for Jesus' life. We can understand how, how this applies to us, the sinner, the Christian alike. But think about how this applied to Jesus. You know, if Jesus' core mission had been to judge the world of sin, that would have been so much easier for him, right? If Jesus' mission was to judge the world, there would have been no need for Jesus to have come to earth as a man at all. He could have just looked down at the little blueberry and squish, judged, moving on. No need to come as a babe wrapped in swallowing clothes. No need to walk among us. No need to suffer. No need to die. If Jesus' mission was judgment, man, that would have been so much easier, wouldn't it? No need to leave the comforts of His throne in heaven. It would have required so much less. And yet, we're told here that Jesus' heart was to save the world, not judge her. You see, to accomplish this aim required a tremendous more of Jesus. The application and implications for his life were profound. In order to save, Jesus had to, to leave heaven. He had to come to this dust bowl as a human being. And beyond that, an unjust death by the hands of bloodthirsty men was an essential component to this mission. To save the world required he give his own life. We think of, of the mission, how it affects us. But it affected him all the more. While judgment would have been so much easier, Jesus chose a different path, didn't he? And he did so for one reason. He loves you. Do you know a love like that? You can't apart from the divine. The love that we have for our spouses is just but a shadow of that love. It's reciprocal at best. The response of a love we receive. Agape is a divine thing. He saves, He came to save, to do the work of salvation because He's that head over heels in love with you. So why are you resisting Him? And even if you're a Christian, why are you resisting Him? Because don't we often struggle? You know, we struggle with it because we don't feel like we deserve it. And we feel like we don't deserve it because we don't deserve it. Like there's nothing about us that, that causes us to deserve it. And we struggle with the, it just seems there's an inequality about it. Just for me, you know, we sing the song Reckless Love. Again, whatever your opinions are, you can say God's love for you is pretty reckless when you get to know you. To love me? To invest so much into me? To spill your blood for me? From my perspective, it's a pretty reckless decision. Because I'm very familiar with me. 
and how terrible I can be and how unworthy I can be and how I can fail to live up to it, right? And yet Jesus came not to judge, but to save. Because he loves you. And that, my friend, should change you more than any other idea in the world. So, Father, we just let that marinate.